don't you grab your Bibles and notebooks and pens and grab a seat. We're going to be in Isaiah 13. That's where you're going to start, but I'm going to give you some background before we get going in the, in the text. But let's pray first. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us in your Son, Jesus, the Messiah, who called us to learn your word. We are forever grateful, Father, that you have called us to yourself by your grace. We enter your word now knowing that we must approach it with open hearts and minds as small children. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us in truth and help us learn the words of the Father. We ask this in the name of the Son. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to thank the leadership and the deacons and elders and uh, Elisa and Sarah and, and everybody involved for keeping the church going while I was gone. Uh, it partially makes me feel really good, and it partially makes me feel like I, I'm not needed at all. So uh, you know how that goes. Um, but uh, thank you to Tyler for teaching. If you haven't uh, listened to his teachings, uh, primarily the, the most recent one on family worship, uh, it's a really important one for the heart of our church and where we're going as a church. Um, so make sure and listen to that one. Um, this morning, I want to jump back into Isaiah. That's where I left off a few weeks ago. And uh, we're just going to get going right away just for the sake of time because we do have a lot of, of ground to cover. We're entering a section that lasts from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 23. Remember that Isaiah is a conglomeration of his prophecies and his poetry and a number of, of pieces of literature that they put together. And we don't know who, whether it was Isaiah himself or maybe some of his disciples or scribes, but they put it together in a way where it definitely takes your mind in a certain direction. And there is a narrative piece to it where it helps you to understand uh, what God is trying to say to Judah and to the nations. And so the section from 13 to 23 could be called God's message to the nations. But we're going to call it today, you can write this down, God's proclamation to the nations. And there's a reason why I use that word proclamation. It's extremely closely tied to the gospel. To preach the gospel is to proclaim that Jesus is king. Now, the language that we're going to cover from 13 through 23 is direct. Uh, it's painful at times. It can get monotonous because it's judgment statements. And so there's lots of ways to get lost in the text, whether it be all the apocalyptic language of the sun losing its light and the earth plunging into darkness, uh, or whether it be getting lost in the idea that this is foretelling prophecy. But remember the primary point of foretelling the future, what a lot of us as Americans think of when we think of the word prophecy. The point of foretelling the future was always for the purpose of giving authority to the prophet so that they could foretell. Foretell versus foretell. What's the difference? Foretell is to tell the future for purposes of hope and granting authority to the prophet. To foretell was to speak God's speak to the people. It was to foretell conviction and in some cases encouragement. So the reason I had you guys read ahead, hopefully Tyler, I think he said that last time he preached, to read ahead, uh, is that we're going to move through these 10 chapters very quickly. It will probably only take us uh, three weeks, I think, at max. Today we're only going to get through chapter 14, but then we're going to pick up the pace because I want to paint a little bit of a context as we go through this. To fully understand the next 10, 11 chapters, uh, we have to understand what I talked about the last time I preached, which is the kingdom. And so some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today is a refresher of that, but some of it is new. The context to understand this passage is this. You can write this down. The context of the proclamation of the kingdom. If we just read this as a bunch of prophecies and get excited about the idea that they came true, yeah, that's, that's true. God was foretelling the future, but we miss the whole point of what Isaiah is trying to say. And so let's refresh from a few weeks ago. I ask you to ponder what you think of when you think of the word kingdom, or maybe the phrase the kingdom of heaven that Jesus used often. Many of us have transitioned that into something that was never intended to be, like dying and going to heaven. That's not what it's meant to be. So I want to take you back to the idea of the definition of a kingdom. This is very important, guys. A king ruling a people. Okay? The whole book of Isaiah is based on this idea and this definition of the kingdom. And so for the majority of history, really up until uh, the 1600s, you could say, but really the 1700s, for most of history, this was understood uh, by everyone on the planet. 
Whether it be a tribe in the middle of the Amazon who had their tribal leader king, or whether it be the empire of Assyria or Babylon, people understood the idea of a kingdom, a king ruling a people. When we look back at history, and the fog kind of lifts on some of the the writings and the hieroglyphs that are there, the first big kingdom that came to be was about 2,500 years before Jesus. Okay, 2,500 years before Jesus. And this was known as the Akkadian kingdom. And they have found diggings and hieroglyphs that speak of this, the Akkadian empire. Now, so as not to get too lost in history, I'm going to point you back to a couple of verses I I read to you last time. In Genesis 10, you can write this down. uh, You can read it in your own Bible later. Genesis 10, 8 through 10. Uh, There was this odd statement about this guy named Nimrod, and he started uh, these kingdoms, and this odd phrase, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And you'll remember the last time I taught, I said that that is a statement of rebellion, that Nimrod was in rebellion against God. He wanted to be the king rather than let God be the king of the world. And so he started his kingdom, and the beginning of it was Babel. Uh, We know it as Babylon. Babel is the Hebrew word. There was also Eric and Akkad. And so hieroglyphs have found this to be true. They have proven that this is true, that kingdoms started at this point in time, and one of them was the Akkadian kingdom. Now you're going, Hans, why the history lesson? Why is this important? Well, because we have to understand these kingdoms in order to understand the whole rest of the Bible. Because we talk about a guide starting up a kingdom, and in our mindset we go, what's the big deal? Right? I mean, he started some kingdoms. Who cares? But to not understand why this is a big deal is to miss the whole point of the proclamation of God becoming king in his son, Jesus Christ. We have to look back to Genesis to understand why this is a big deal, okay? In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Now, I I, uh, put those in italics because the words image and dominion are very important, and we miss them a little bit in the English here. The word image in the Hebrew is a word tselem, and it's actually used throughout the Old Testament to speak of another word, idol. In other words, you could read it. God said, let us make man in our idol. Right? Now, that doesn't translate very well in the English. So that's why we've changed it to image. But that's why the, the story goes that he created Adam out of the mud and turned him into a statue. And then he had to breathe into him in order to give him life. Wait a minute. Why is that okay for God to do, to build and form a statue? We can't do that. That's one of the great Ten Commandments. Don't make any graven images, any idols. Why could God do it? What's the answer? Because it's not worshiping, very good, and he's God, right? So when we try and fashion, you know, a sandcastle and go, what happens? All the sand blows away, right? Because we are not the source of life, he is. And so he created statues after his own likeness, his own image, and breathed into them. And he said, you statues, you are supposed to have dominion. Now this word in the Hebrew is also very important. It is the, the, the word, uh, I have to look here at the Hebrew, it's very small, uh, radah, there we go, radah, okay? And it's, it means dominion, it means to rule, or very interestingly, to tread down. Now, in our 2017 language, that doesn't make much sense, but if we look back a little bit, we should be very familiar with this idea. He created statues, and he said those statues are supposed to speak to dominion. Now, were they supposed to be the ones that have the rule and the reign over all the earth by themselves on their own power and authority? No. It was God in his dominion, his authority, handing his power down to the human beings who were supposed to be his sub-kings, his sub-regents in the world. Now, again, this doesn't make much sense to us in the United States, but think about this. Look at these pictures. Why did they create these statues and put them all over uh, their empires? Well, because those are pictures of, on the left, a pharaoh, and on the right, an emperor, kings of their empire. And the reason they would make these statues and place them throughout the kingdom was to remind people who was ruling and reigning. The reason there would be idols like the one on the left placed near temples is because, interesting, all kingdoms of the past, for the most part, thought that their kings were directly related to their gods. 
And so they would look at these statues and say, remember, that's our God. And so when God says, I want to create statues, images, breathe life into them, and I want to spread them throughout the world, and they are to have my dominion, what is he saying? He's saying, I want you guys to always point back to me that I am the authority and the king over the world. You guys with me so far? This was the whole point. So Genesis, you can think of Eden specifically, but the world in general, in terms of temple and kingdom. The world was supposed to be the temple of God, specifically Eden. Uh, The world was supposed to be the kingdom of God, and mankind was supposed to say, we are the ones in dominion on behalf of God, reminding creation that we follow a benevolent, loving, wonderful God who created us. Now, this idea of dominion, I said it also means to tread down. To tread down is an old idiom that means to rule over. Anybody familiar with this? Makes sense, right? What is this saying? Well, for a lot of us, this has really good connotations. Why? Because it's at the heart of who we are as a country, that we fought back uh, uh, oppression, um, that we brought on liberty. Um, this is also used in the, uh, in the military, I'm, I, I think in the Marines. Is that correct? Navy? Okay, thank you. You can tell how much I know. Uh, so at the heart of it, this is a really good thing for us as Americans. But what I want you to key in on is the words, don't tread on me. What were we saying when we created this flag? We were saying, we reject the rule of Britain. We reject the rule of an imperial power over us as a country. So now you can see why this word dominion means to rule over or to tread. You see, it was God's plan that he would be the king, his people would rule in his name, and the world would be in the midst of liberty and freedom because we were under the rule of God. But because mankind tweaked and perverted and started to act in their own best interest, then rulers became despots. They became uh, dictators who were evil in God's eyes. And so we here have the initiation or the idea uh, back in Genesis of kingdoms and kings. And there's this idea that behind all the kingdoms of the world is actually one ruler. And that ruler is known as the prince of the power of the air or the prince of this world. Do you guys know who that is? Satan. Satan. In Hebrew, he's called Hasatan, the accuser. Okay? Um, He is the one that is behind all the kings of this world, the rulers of this world. You think to yourself, wait a minute, I'm familiar with this story. You guys familiar with this story? Matthew 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him. Do you remember this odd temptation? I always wondered about this until I started to realize the idea of the kingdom. Jesus said to to Lucifer, to Satan, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to him, all these I will give you. How could Satan say that if they weren't actually his? All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, the accuser or the enemy, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. That's a statement of dominion and power and authority and kingship right there at the end. God is our king, He is our Lord, He is our only authority. And so these kingdoms, these worldly kingdoms, spawn other kingdoms in rebellion against God and one another in wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And all the while that these kingdoms grew, primarily in the birthplace of what we now know as Iraq, Assyria, and Babylon, right in the center of that, our benevolent God was still working. He had not given up on the world and let the world go to its own devices. He said, I'm going to pull up one man. And from that one man, I'm going to make my own kingdom. And that man's name was Abraham, right in Ur of the Chaldees, right in the center of Assyria, of Babylon. He pulled him up. And it was from this one man that came the people and the nation known as Israel, the kingdom of God. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. I've I've shown this to you a number of times in recent months. Now, therefore, Moses says, as the voice of God to the Israelites. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so this idea of kingdom is very important. But Israel, as we have seen, Israel and its kings failed. Isaiah laments over this fact. 
And were that the end, they would be left to no hope whatsoever. But as we have been seeing, Isaiah continually points to a future king, not a king in the days that he's alive, but a future king that would rule and reign, one that would lead his people in righteousness and justice and reestablish the reign of the Father God, the Creator God's rule in this world. And that ruler, we know, was and is Jesus, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. And it was this idea three weeks ago that we looked at as being proclaimed to the people of the nations. This was the proclamation that went out, the gospel, the good news, that God had been restored to his rightful throne as king, that on that cross he had been lifted up, he had been exalted, he had been enthroned. Kings of this world get enthroned on a throne. Our God in the upside-down kingdom got enthroned on a cross. And rather than a crown of gold, he was given a crown of thorns. And above his head was a placard proclaiming the good news, King of the Jews. This is the message of the Bible. This is the gospel. Now, how is it that we enter this kingdom? You guys know this. It's by his work on the cross he was enthroned. It's by his work on the cross that he ripped the temple, uh, the, the way into the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he, by his grace and his work, allows us into his kingdom. And he says, you simply must enter it as a child. Lay everything down, your ideas, your worldviews, what you believe, your theology, and enter in and learn from me. That's it. And then we spend the rest of our lives being conformed into his image so that we show who he is in rightful reign of this world through our lives as we bring our lives into submission to him. Now, with the birth of the Enlightenment, we very much as human beings said, we can solve our own problems. The problem is, it's not an absence of God. The problem is, is that we each don't have our own say. We need to put humans at the center. We need to get rid of God. Atheism gets spawned. Humanism gets spawned. And from this came this idea that it was the rulers who were the problem. Now, that was partially true. Got rulers who were enslaving people like crazy. But what was at the root of that was that God was not reigning in the hearts of man. So part of our solution was to create what we now know as democracy, where we each can be our own king, determining our future, having a voice into the rule that we believe we have the right to have. But this was never the plan. Now, we appreciate it. We love it. We're thankful for it because of the freedoms that we have. But the result of the enlightenment and humanism became that we very quickly stopped worrying about this idea of God as king. Why? Because we refuse a king. Do not tread on me. Don't rule me. Don't tell me what I should do. And so the idea of the gospel shifted from the idea of, we have a king! Can you imagine Paul Revere running through the roads of colonial America? We have a king! Isn't it good news, everyone? No. It's not. But that's the proclamation. We have a king, people. And he is a benevolent, good, loving king, but we have a king, and his name is Jesus. And so to understand this book of Isaiah, we have to work, guys. We have to work hard to put down our worldview of 2017. I've been asked a number of times recently, really great questions, and I appreciate it. Hans, are you against the United States? Do you want anarchy? No, none of those things is true. I'm thankful for my country. I'm actually at heart very patriotic. I love our country. I'm sad to see the decline that's happened. But what we have to realize is that the reason I'm preaching this is not because of politics. The reason I preach this so heavily is because in order to understand the gospel of the Bible, you have to put down your Americanism. And you have to put down your worldview and filters. And you have to find it a really good thing that there is a king ruling in love over you. We love the gospel of Jesus is loving, right? And grace allows us to do, you know, make mistakes and get back in his good graces. That's good. We often don't think of it as good news that God rules and reigns in our lives. And so, with this, we must work to see what Isaiah is talking about. And what we will see is the great news of the whole narrative of Scripture is the same as the proclamation that Peter made to Jesus in Matthew Matthew 16, 15. Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the anointed one, meaning king, the son of the living God. 
He didn't say, okay, and, and I know I'm going to get some pushback on this. He didn't say, you are my Savior. Notice that? What did he say? You are the anointed one, the king, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so we're going to understand that as we go through. The Jewish people understood this fact very much. In fact, they're still looking for their king. They're still looking for their Messiah. And any, in any synagogue, before the reading of the Torah, before the reading of the word, this is what they say. I actually prayed part of it earlier. They pray this prayer. They say, blessed are you, Lord. Okay? When you write it out, it's actually Yahweh, the name of the creator God from Exodus. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us your Torah or your law. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. When they finish reading, they say this. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe, who gave us the Torah of truth and set everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. And so when we look to Isaiah 11 and 12, what we saw is this idea of a kingdom. And chapter 12 was this victory song that our king reigns. He has defeated oppression. He is the one in whom we can trust and find refuge. He is the holy one of Israel. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. That was what we left off with in chapter 12. And now we are ready to step in, now that our worldview has been properly put in place, to take a look at chapter 13. And what you will see first here is this statement. You can write it down. God's proclamation to all the kingdoms of man. God's proclamation to all the kingdoms of man. Let's look at Isaiah 13.1. The oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Okay, now let's, let's uh, change it up here a little bit. How many of you, when you read this, immediately think of the matrix? Okay? <laughs> the oracle, right? You guys are like, Hans, you got us all serious, and now you're trying to throw in a bad joke. Okay? No, seriously, oracle. We're not really familiar with that word, that idea. The oracle concerning Babylon. Well, again, we looked at the Hebrew here, and what the word in the Hebrew means is the pronouncement, the proclamation. It's masa. It means the proclamation concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And so just as the proclamation had been made about the true kingdoms in chapters 11 and 12, and really for the first 12 chapters, right now what we're told is a proclamation concerning Babylon. Now, you guys are Bible scholars. You get this. You're at a good Bible teaching church. Whenever you see something, you always go back to the first time it was mentioned. When was the first time Babylon was mentioned? Tower of Babel. Very good. Ben gets a gold star for later. Okay? Tower of Babel. Babylon. We just read it about Nimrod. Okay? The very first kingdoms, the beginning of his kingdoms was Babel. And then chapter 11, you can go read it on your own in Genesis. It speaks to how they were trying to make a name for themselves. We don't want the name of God. We want a name for ourselves. We don't want to be spread across the world. We want to stay put, and we want to make ourselves important. And so this idea of Babylon should spark something in our minds. It was the first kingdom mentioned. And so Babylon is used throughout Scripture for two purposes. You can write these down. First, Babylon was used for the purpose of simply speaking of the actual kingdom of Babylon. There will be a kingdom that raises up known as Babylon, and the Bible speaks directly to that. We'll see this even within this chapter. But the second thing that happens whenever Babylon is mentioned, you have to ask yourself the question, is this the specific kingdom, or is this used as a symbol, a placeholder? Because Babylon is spoken of often as the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of the world. And so what we're going to see throughout this chapter is the two woven together in a beautiful way. And I believe what we are given in chapter or in verses 2 through 8 is a statement that is more global about the kingdoms of the world in their rebellion against the kingdom of God. And what God is going to be stating here through Isaiah is that he is at war with these kingdoms that lift themselves up above his own kingdom and his own reign, and he will bring them low. You can be sure of it. Let's take a look here in verse 2. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. 
and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host, that means an army, for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. There's your daily encouraging word from Caleb. <laughs> when we read this, we hear in the back of our minds, wah, wah, right? Not encouraging, but important. What is it that he's saying here? Notice the scene. If any of you have seen Braveheart or Rob Roy or some of the, the more uh, recent epic battle movies, two armies from two different kings facing off across the valley from one another, up on the hills, and they can see one another, and they can see the city that they're trying to sack. And one of the leaders of one of the armies, he puts up his hand, and he says, it is time to attack, and he yells, freedom, or whatever it is, right? And he yells, am I dating myself? You guys have seen Braveheart, right? Okay. okay. And he yells, and then they attack. And he busts through, and he enters the city that he's trying to sack, the gates of the nobles, and the troops muster themselves, and they attack. How do we know what army this is talking about? Well, there's two debates, and I think both of them have tons of merit. One is, is that this, this is speaking of God mustering up the armies of Babylon to attack Syria or Assyria and defeat them because they are rebellious and sinful. And that could be because he's going to go on in chapter 13 and talk more about Babylon. But it's interesting. He uses some great words here. And when you go back and look at the original language, take a look at verse 3 there. He says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. Uh, this word is used in a lot of different ways in Hebrew, but it primarily means those that have been made holy or set apart. Now, it could be that Babylon was set apart for God's purposes, but you tie that in with the last words, my proudly exulting ones. And what's interesting here is it says this. In the footnotes of many of your Bibles, it may say, or those who exult in my majesty. Those who are excited that I'm in power. Was Babylon excited that Yahweh was in power? No. So who's he talking about here? Well, look ahead a little bit. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. For the Jew, this would have immediately sparked in their mind Psalm 2. Everybody go with me to Psalm 2. Go to the left in your Bible and go to Psalm 2. Psalm 1, if you've read it before, is a statement of two possible paths. The path of wisdom that follows the ways of Yahweh or the path of rebellion that leads to death. And then immediately in, in Psalm 2, we're told this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The word in the Hebrew is Mashiach, Christ. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is that? Jesus. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
In essence, verses 1 through 8 are speaking the exact same thing. Verses 1 through 8 in Isaiah 13 are speaking the exact same thing, saying the nations continue to rage against God, trying to put their leadership, their ruler, in place of God. But the reality is, is God has always been in control, and he always will be in control. And the Bible ends with this statement in Revelation. Why don't you turn there with me? Revelation chapter 11. Go to the last book of the Bible and turn to Revelation 11, starting in verse 15. Revelation eleven fifteen through 18, it says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his anointed one, his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Guys, you see how it's important to get this idea of kingdom? It's kind of in there a lot, right? And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the narrative of Scripture. Now go back with me to Isaiah 13 and we'll continue on. Isaiah 13, let's pick up in verse 9. I believe, in looking at verses 2 through 8, Isaiah is speaking a more general statement that the nations of the world are going to be taken down by the host of the kingdom of heaven, which is God, his angels, and his people. And it will come. But it's interesting, he starts to move on there. And remember, in the original text, there were no numbers for verses or chapters. It was one fluid flow of thought, especially if you look at it in the Hebrew. It just looks all the same, right? And so they used words, and one of those is in verse 9. Behold, this was always a word in the Hebrew that says, uh, put a stop on it and let's start a new idea. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. We see the same idea running through here, that that the host of heaven is going to come and attack. But it's interesting, if you keep reading, we then run into these very uh, heavy, heavy statements. Verse 15, whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes and their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished or raped. Did anybody else hear the sound stop? The music stop? The turntable just went to a screeching halt? Wait a minute. This is the kingdom of heaven? The host of heaven doing these things? This is not possible. You're absolutely right. Remember, it's not like our English language in which there is a period and then a start. There is simply just thought. And we have to do our job to think through what is he talking about here. What this section is, in my opinion and in many commentators' opinions, is a transition from the statements of the nations of the world will be judged down into a very specific judgment that is going to come against against Babylon. And Babylon was going to be attacked by a group of people that verse 17 tells us is the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Medes. Take a look at verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. 
No Arab will pinch his, uh, pitch his tent there. Uh, no shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell. Uh, and that could be a different word. We're not sure. could also be owls. Their, uh, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant pa- pla- uh, palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. What we see here is the next thing you can write down. We see that God moved from proclamation to all kingdoms of man to God's proclamation to the specific kingdom of Babylon. And if you say to me, Hans, this is confusing, I would say, amen, brother or sister. It absolutely is. And this is why we have to work so hard to understand, uh, and that's why I spend so much time studying the original language, is because, guys, there is movement through here that if you just read it and just kind of pass by it, you're going to miss it. God is trying to take the big idea that he is king of the world and bringing the nations under his authority to the fact that he will use the nations of the world to punish other nations of the world. In other words, his sovereignty, his work, his, his, uh, his authority is always at play in the world. When a nation gets too pompous and too arrogant, what does God do? Across the course of history, he steps in and he says, that nation is done. Why? Because they got a big head. And they need to realize that I am the one in authority, not them. And how does he do it? He uses another terrible nation of the world that we would look at and go, that's an enemy of you, God. And he says, yep, but I'm going to use them as the rod of discipline. This is how all of history has played out. And guys, this is how all of history will play out. It just will. Until the imminent second coming of Christ. Now, if you're like me, the more you read this, the heavier you get, the more tired you get. And you think, this is not the Bible I want to be reading today. Can we please go to one of the gracious statements in the New Testament? But guys, see, the gracious statements in the New Testament get their basis off of all of this. It is the grace of God that he did not wipe out the world and say, I'm starting anew. He said, I'm going to let you play out. And those that truly desire to be part of my kingdom in the midst of all the kingdoms of the worlds, like Abraham, you will be mine and I will allow you into my kingdom by my grace. And so in his statement about the nations in general, in his statement about Babylon, we see him using this interesting thing that I call the mountaintops of prophecy. And I know you guys love my, my scribbles so much, I thought I'd throw one in here for you. Okay? You've got the armless man, that's the prophet, all right? looking up, and in one, one uh, sight of vision, he sees something near, the Babylonian invasion, or in this case, the, Med, uh, the Medes and the Persians invading. And he also sees the eventual downfall of the nations, Partially, throughout Isaiah, we will see the first coming of Jesus, and then also we see the second coming, when the king comes to take his rightful place. So you can see the main point of the proclamation of the full victory of God's kingdom in the future blends with the vision of the more specific and immediate vision of the Medes stepping in. And this did happen. It was proven true. And so Isaiah foretold the future when the Medes came and destroyed the Babylonians. Uh, It was finally destroyed in 518 B.C., and his, uh, his um, statement came true. And then he moves on from there to an interesting statement, not just to Babylon, but interestingly specific to the king of Babylon. Okay? Let's take a look at chapter 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. This is the statement of his people, his kingdom. He's going to choose them. And will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob, and the people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. Okay, now don't read that in the English mentality of slaves. What this is saying is, is that the people that had been oppressed by the kingdoms of the world, in this case Israel, God's people, he would take them and set them in authority over the other nations. Okay, the word slave in the Hebrew is always a tough one because it actually meant indentured servant or employee. Okay, in other words, Israel is going to become the boss. It did not have the same connotations that we think of in the United States of uh, devastating slavery that was an original sin of our country, okay? Now, he says, they will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Now, this is a statement of the kingdom where he says, I will do this, and then he moves right from there, a short little breather, I think, a little encouragement to his people, 
And then he steps right back in and he taunts the king of Babylon. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay? And he says this, how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken off the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you, the king of Babylon, were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. In other words, this is kind of, this is kind of Garden of Eden talk. There's been restoration to the creation because this evil ruler has been brought low. Could that be just the king of Babylon? Well, we'll see here in a second. Sheol, or the place of the dead, beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades or the shadows of those that are there as well, the people that are the shadows, to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones. Not that there will be thrones in the place of the dead, but that they will still be who they were on this earth. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, the king of Babylon, you too have become as weak as we? You have become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Mm, That's just so wonderful, isn't it? And then it steps in and says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. We get huge ideas here of the Exodus God freeing his oppressed people and then taunting the ruler of the people, much like he did Pharaoh. God's people will will be restored. And he starts this masterful poem, speaking of the freedom that is to come because the death of the ruler, and he will not regain his life. Now, debate has happened for years, for for hundreds of years on who this is speaking of. Is this the human king of Babylon it's talking about here, or is Isaiah trying to speak to something more? Because just as we've talked about, the nations of the world, the rulers of the world, they have standing behind them a darker force, the accuser, the enemy, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Could it be that what's happening here is Isaiah is combining the two? Isaiah has in view both the actual king of Babylon— Because he's going to say in a little bit, is this the man who made the earth tremble? But we also have to grapple with this phrase, how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. It's very interesting. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, and let's see if this gives us any idea of what Isaiah is talking about. Luke chapter 10. Jesus, I believe, was always very purposeful in the things he said. Very much unlike me. That's a joke. Ah, you guys are such good students, you're turning right now. Kelly always tells me, don't tell the jokes right after you tell them to turn because they'll never laugh, and it's true. So Luke chapter 10, and we're going to go to verse 8. Luke chapter 10, verse 8. And Jesus was very intentional. He's sending out his 72. Now, quiz time. See if you've been paying attention. Everybody get your brains ready here. What was Jesus sending them out to proclaim? And don't say the gospel the kingdom, that he's king, that he's king of the world. That's what he was sending him out for. So he says in chapter 10, verse 8 of Luke, whenever you enter a town they, uh, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, what was the point of healing? The kingdom of God has come near to you. See, healing wasn't in and of itself something that was important. It was meant to show that the kingdom of God, which in and of itself is restoring and healing and brings restoration back to the world, it's come. So he says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what you tell them. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. You'll notice Jehovah's Witnesses doing this. If you turn them away at, their, at your door, they'll turn away and they'll kind of rub the dust off their feet, right? Because um, they think they're following this. But that's not what he meant, all right? Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Do you think he's talking about kingdom? That would be a yes, guys. Is he talking about kingdom? Yes. There we go. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom, a kingdom, than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, another kingdom which we'll get to, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Notice the wording. Lifted up, exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. Same language as he's using in Isaiah. The kingdoms and the rulers, you think you're going to be lifted up and you're going to be important and you're going to take power and you're going to change the world. But the reality is you will be brought low. The one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is a statement of ambassadorship being sent on behalf of the king. The 72 returned with joy. Okay, a little break in the story. They come back. They're stoked. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What kind of language is that? Authority, kingdom, okay? Even the demons are subject. And he said to them, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. That's my entry. Uh Uh-oh. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Our job is to tread on the snakes. Interesting. You think back to the flag, okay? Tread on scorpions and serpents and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is a very specific idiom that means you are citizens in the census of the kingdom of heaven. That's what that means. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's kingdom speak. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Remember that Jesus says, how do you enter the kingdom? As a little child. And so these kingdom connotations are massive. And so if we take this same story, Jesus' words, and we go back and we ask ourselves, what does he mean, how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? He's speaking not only of the ruler of Babylon, but also of Satan behind him. And now he speaks very specifically of Satan. Go back to Isaiah 14 with me, Isaiah 14, 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. Uh, This statement basically means I will put myself in the place of God amongst the angels. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot." You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. And then he says, May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Is it bad to make cities? No, he's speaking about Babylon the original Babel. He's speaking about the rebellion of mankind. Now, if we know our Bibles well, this is very hard for us, we know that this seemingly is against God's own law. You'll find in multiple places in the Bible, it says that the fathers are not to be punished for the sins of the children, and the children are not supposed to be punished for the sins of the father. So what does he mean here? That the offspring of evildoers uh, prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers. Well, guys, we got to remember what the original statement of the gospel was. Where was it? It was in Genesis, and here's where it is. In Genesis, after the curse happens, he's speaking to the woman, and he says this very odd statement. You guys have seen this before. This is Genesis 3.15. He says to the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The word in the Hebrew is tzerah. It means seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This statement is about the trampling down of Satan and the kingdoms that he reigns in. And the victory of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, over them all. When we look at this, 
This brings us some hope. Why? Because of the chaos that has surrounded mankind for centuries. It's interesting, in our chronological snobbery, we think that, man, our world is so much more messed up than it ever has been. Guys, go read history. It has always been messed up massively for one reason. Rebellion against the authority of God. And it's not that it's authority against a dictator who's telling us to do what I say or else. It is rebellion against a God who says, I love you, I have created you, I have made the world to reflect my image of benevolent love and justice and righteousness. And then we get stuck in the tornado of the chaos surrounding us. Guys, whether you've been just watching the news for the last, I don't know, 37 years in my case, or just seeing the nations rage around you, or maybe, maybe you're not even worried about the international stage. You stay away from politics. Good idea. You are just surrounded by the kingdom of darkness in your own life. Maybe you are surrounded by the kingdom of darkness because you've given authority over to the king, the prince of darkness, because you have removed the authority of Christ in your life. Or maybe you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, and you have jumped so far into the front lines of the battle against the kingdom of darkness that you are weary because you just see nothing but darkness swirling around you. In either case, this section that we've covered today is massive hope for you and for me. We think we're far removed from this because this is talking about nations and the abode of the dead and all these things, but this is the good news of what we've read today. As much as it talks about maggots and shale and loathed branches and destruction, this is what it says in verse 22. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the good news that the kingdom of the adversary will one day be defeated. Let that sit for a second. What we wrestle against in our own flesh, what we see wrestling in the world, what we see wrestling in those people we wish we could help and we wish we could become their savior. We see the kingdom of darkness ruling and reigning, but the truth is, the gospel truth, the good news, is that Jesus has and he will fully rise up against that destructive power. I see us as Christians fighting so hard against people and philosophies. We have one enemy. And it was the one that initiated rebellion against our king. And he says, I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog. He was a Sonic fan, I guess. Okay? And pools of water. And I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts... And remember, that always means Yahweh or the commander of the army of heaven, okay? The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. He will free those that are oppressed. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Here's my application question for you today. How will you respond to God's proclamation? We covered a lot of history. We covered a lot of Hebrew we covered a lot of text, and we will in the next couple of weeks. But my big question for you for this entire section through chapter 23 is, how are you going to respond to these proclamations? Do not be amazed that the chaos of the nations or the chaos around you will always be until the true king comes. The victory of God's kingdom and the defeat of the world's kingdoms has been proclaimed, it has been purposed, and it will stand. Jesus is king. His kingdom is and will be victorious. How will you respond to that proclamation? You see, in the midst of Isaiah's prophecy here at the end, God gives us by his spirit a very important statement. He says, I will break the yoke. The yoke will depart from them and his burden from their shoulder, speaking of freeing those that were oppressed. But you see, we are created and designed not to take on uh, 
uh, our own idea, our own image, and our own authority. We are created and designed to take on the image of someone, to be under the authority of someone or something. And guys, if you haven't purposefully decided whose authority you will be under, then you have passively decided to be under the authority of something, maybe even just your own will. But God uses these same words when he speaks as his son in Matthew 11. Last place I'll turn you. Turn to Matthew 11:25, And notice these same words, yoke and burden, that he frees us from the kingdom of the oppressor. But in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, those who enter the kingdom. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's very similar to his statement. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he says, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we are created to take on the yoke of authority of someone or something in our life. If it's not Jesus, then it will be one of the many things that are out there, sin, brokenness, selfishness, relational dysfunction. We will be taught by the yoke of the world, and it will break us. In rabbinic teachings, this word yoke actually was used to describe the whole set of teachings of a given rabbi. And we have learned many different yokes in our life, and we've taken them on, and they bear a burden on us that we cannot stand. Many of you listening today, or maybe even listening online, might say, Taking on the kingdom sounds hard. Following his rule sounds uncomfortable and difficult. Many of you might even proclaim that it's legalism, trying to follow his rules. But see, the reality is that you're equating that with an abusive and brutal authoritarian figure that maybe you've had the example of in your life or that you've seen. The reason Jesus uses these same words that can also mean the abuse of an oppressive dictator is that Jesus is trying to tell you my kingdom is completely different. My reign is upside down in comparison to the world. My law is not the law that brings you guilt and shame. It is the law that brings you encouragement, conviction, and repentance. And at the end of the day, what it brings us is a knowledge that we are loved by our Father God and we are citizens in his kingdom never to be removed. See, authority does not mean abuse. Often it means rescue. Guys, imagine being a child in a dysfunctional home where you've been abused most of your life. For those parents who have abused that child, the police, the authority coming through that door, is that a good day or a bad day? It's a bad day. That authority figure is seen as an enemy. But for that child who's been oppressed, that authority figure is from God. Authority can mean abuse if done wrongly. But authority can also mean, in a massive way, rescue. And this is the God that we serve. The truth is, Jesus made it easy to enter the kingdom. He said, to do so, you must be reborn. Come to him as a child. Lay all that you believe and all that you have at his feet and be taught by his word and the power of his spirit. It is the act of truly giving up your life to his rule that is the hard part. And that is a process, guys. It doesn't happen in a moment. And don't wait for the Spirit to force you to do it. The Spirit works in connection and co-laboring with you and your will. Cry out to God and say, God, by the power of your Spirit, assist me in learning and following God's Word. But see, the reality is, guys, is that the Spirit will not work without the Word, and the Word is powerless without the Spirit. And so the two of these must mix in us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you are one who says that freedom to do what you want sounds great, but the burden of being in his authority sounds suffocating, realize that whether you like it or not, you are under someone's yoke. You are under a yoke of sin and selfishness and oppression, but the good news of the Bible is that Jesus has defeated that, and he's brought you into his kingdom. And in the last moments of life for the enemy, in a final grasp for the world, he might be clawing at many of you, 
But the reality is, is Jesus has freed you. And the moment you accept him, he's given you everything you need to walk in his kingdom, his word and his spirit. If you want to be one of those people who walks in his kingdom as a citizen of his kingdom, and you haven't done that before, come talk to me in the back. Don't be afraid. Don't be nervous. Come talk to me about what it is to walk in the kingdom of God. But if you are one today that realizes and understands that you already are a citizen of the kingdom, under Christ's authority, working day by day in a process to bring your life into his image. I want to encourage you in that process. When you falter, like I said last time I preached, get back up and keep pursuing him in his word. You have his spirit. You have his word. Let the combination of the two compel you to follow him and to sanctify you and purify you in his ways. And if you are one of those people I talked about today that finds yourself in a battle, if you are one of those people that is surrounded by the kingdom of darkness and you know that everywhere you look, the enemy is near. Be encouraged that Christ has led the charge. He's inaugurated his reign and it is coming quickly in fullness. And as we continue to fight, waiting for our Lord and King to return in fullness, the Lord has told us, I have purposed the victory and it will come to pass. Fight with me.